and welcome to another episode of The Poet Taster. I'm Andrew Smith and today we're going to be discussing one of the most influential poems of British Romanticism and possibly English literature in general, William Wordsworth's Tintin Abbey. Now Tintin Abbey is not a particularly long poem, but it is probably a little longer than I can um, easily sort of read through and discuss in one episode. So what I've done for this episode is to divide it into two. Uh, episode 2A is me reading um, the poem, and episode 2B is me discussing the poem. So it's up to you as to how you want to um, uh, you know, listen to these episodes, whether you want to listen to the poem first, or you just dive straight into the discussion and read along. Totally up to you. Before I jump into uh, Tintin Abbey itself, I just want to give you a little bit of context for how the poem first appeared. Uh, it was published in 1798 in a uh, poem called Lyrical Ballads, and that was a joint production between Wordsworth uh, and his close friend Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Um, they were sort of in their mid-twenties at the time, living quite closely together, uh, and they'd sort of really come up with a new philosophy about what poetry should be. Be. Lyrical Ballads is published at a time when there's quite a lot of revolutionary thought, not only in political terms, obviously, you know, this is sort of 10 years or so after the French Revolution has broken out, but also in aesthetic terms and, and cultural terms. And this really influences the way Lyrical Ballads is put together by the two poets. Their general kind of interest is in experimenting with the way in which ordinary life and ordinary language can can be suitable for poetic expression. Wordsworth, in particular, really had a feel that um, that poetry had become very um, formulaic uh, by this period, and he really wanted to sort of unpack some of those kind of established traditions and and typical ways of writing poetry and try and do something new with this volume. Volume, lyrical ballads. Um, has been sort of regarded as, as one of the, the kind of the, the foundational texts for British Romanticism for this reason, not only in terms of the way in which it experiments with ordinary language, but also some of the themes that, um, that come through in these poems. A lot of the characters in these poems are poor, uh, oppressed, marginalised figures, and that is very much... Uh, kind of in keeping, if you, if, if you think about it, with the sort of the political interest in the rights of the uh, the lower classes um, as opposed to um, to the elite in society. Now, Lyrical Ballads came out, as I say, in 1798, and it didn't have a huge impact um, immediately. It, it sold okay, but it wasn't uh, recognised um, in the moment as, as sort of instituting a, a fundamentally different way of kind of uh, thinking about literature. Although some critics were a bit concerned about the extent to which um, these, uh, these poems could be kind of understood as poetry as such. I mean, Wordsworth himself kind of knew that that this was a possible reaction to readers and critics uh, of the poem. He wrote an advertisement, um, to, which was at the the front of the um, of the collection, and in subsequent editions, he sort of expanded it into all these uh, extra essays. But he said in this advertisement, the majority of the following poems are to be considered as experiments. 
They were written chiefly with a view to ascertain how far the language of conversation in the middle and lower classes of society is adapted to the purposes of poetic pleasure. Readers accustomed to the gaudiness and inane phraseology of many modern writers will perhaps frequently have to struggle with feelings of strangeness and awkwardness. They will look around for poetry and will be induced to inquire by what species of courtesy these attempts can be permitted can be permitted to assume that title. So he's really kind of telling us right from the word go that uh, this is not going to be poetry as we have traditionally understood it. So I just wanted to set that out as the context for um, for this, the discussion of Tintin Abbey itself. Not necessarily because it's uh, what we would recognize now as a, as a dramatically different form of poetry, but it forms the last poem in this collection, which was kind of intended by Wordsworth and Coleridge as kind of revolutionary uh, in the way it thought about what poetry should sound like, should look like, and, and how it should be read and, and understood. Okay, moving on to the poem itself, probably the first point to note when you're thinking about this poem is to pay attention to the title itself. We often refer to the title um, in, in shorthand terms as Tintin Abbey, but the full title is actually a bit of a mouthful. It reads, Lines written a few miles above Tintin Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, 13th of July, 1798. So uh, just by way of context, again, the Wye Valley is, um, is a, a sort of a river valley uh, bordering England and Wales. Uh, and in this period and sort of for the a few decades before it, it was a very, very popular tourist um, destination for people kind of interested in, in what was thought of and referred to at the time as picturesque landscape. Not that you need to sort of worry too much about that, but Wordsworth is, is kind of indulging a bit of a tourist fantasy here by going to visit this very famous kind of um, landscape. And that's kind of relevant in the sense that when he's writing about this landscape, people reading this poem sort of have a lot of kind of cultural sort of understanding of, of what he's talking about, and, and they might have visited, visited um, the landscape themselves. But that's, what, that's not what this poem uh, goes on to talk about. It's a very deeply personal, kind of almost solipsistic poem on the growth of Wordsworth's own mind. Um, so you sort of expect a, a poem about this landscape that he's he's viewing for the second time. He's he's saying it's it's revisiting this landscape, um, but in actual fact, the landscape is more so just a prompt for him to talk about how um, he has grown in the five years uh, since he first visited um, uh, the Wye Valley. So as we work through the poem, um, Wordsworth or the speaker, but it's really Wordsworth here, looks out over the landscape from quite a high vantage point, and he remembers first travelling through the region five years earlier, so in uh, 1793. So a very kind of interesting period in terms of the, the war in France. That's when sort of the revolution was starting to take a bit of a turn for the worse and, and moving into, into a phase known as the Terror. During the poem, he he's sort of musing on how much he himself has changed in that five-year period. And as he goes through the poem, he sort of realises that these his memories of this landscape 
function as kind of mental restoratives or, or sources of moral strength to which he can kind of turn and, and gain strength from uh, in times of difficulty. So, and this is a very kind of typical um, feature of a lot of romantic poetry, landscape in Tintin Abbey is as much about kind of a form of mindscape as well. It's not just only what's out um, external to you, but how you're kind of um, processing it and, and what it's reminding you of um, in terms of your personal development. As Wordsworth himself says, um, the world uh, that he's, he's watching is something we half perceive and half create. So it's not just a poem about a particular spot a few miles above Tintin Abbey in 1798, but it's an exploration of Wordsworth's mind and the growth of his personal identity as well. Now, given this emphasis on Wordsworth's mental processes, it's probably unsurprising that the landscape um, is described in quite a generalized and quite abstract way throughout the poem. We don't get a lot of detail and in some ways it reminds me a little bit of um, some of the poetry that John Clare writes um, when he's trying to be very sort of you know um, highly poetic. Um, you know I talked in a previous episode about the gypsy camp and you get a contrast between sort of the, the stylized very sort of abstract ideas of the gypsy camp that he writes in some poems as opposed to the very detailed, specific, quite unsettling vision of, of gypsy camps he writes and others. So in Tintin Abbey here, very generalised landscape. He opens uh, by talking about hedgerows, no, hardly hedgerows, little lines of sport of wood run wild. So it's only a broad outline of the landscape that, um, that he's, he's focusing on here. And his description of the landscape is actually remarkable as much for what it excludes as for what it includes. I mean, for a poem that is is often referred to as Tintin Abbey, Wordsworth doesn't even mention uh, Tintin Abbey itself, which was the main kind of tourist attraction in this part of the um, of the Y landscape. It was a ruined abbey, um, very very famous. But he doesn't even talk about the abbey. Uh, and he doesn't explain that the abbey and the landscape around it was um, inhabited by beggars and, and it was quite impoverished, uh, that the Wye River was a really busy way to, uh, waterway for coal barges, that it was quite an industrialised landscape. This region of South Wales was very, very important in the early years of the Industrial Revolution, but you wouldn't have a clue about any of that if you were just reading Wordsworth's poem. And that fact, you know, the fact that Wordsworth's ignoring all sorts of um, historical kind of facts about this landscape um, has led a lot of critics of the poem, a lot of, you know, writers about the poem to argue that Wordsworth's kind of guilty of a bit of a flight from reality, a sort of, you know, an escape into his own imagination. And that really what this poem does is sort of draw a veil over the horrors of industrialization and 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 what life is really like in Britain or this part of Britain in this period and that's often described as a kind of a romantic ideology that sort of that willingness to kind of ignore um, unpleasant reality is is often kind of talked about as a as a characteristic of a certain type of romantic um, writing so whereas some contemporary reviewers of lyrical ballads and of this poem criticized Wordsworth for being too radical in focusing on the, the hardships and the suffering of the poor and, and other poems in this collection. 
modern critics are criticizing him for precisely the opposite fault, you know, for, for not paying enough attention to the beggars in this landscape, to the effect of the Industrial Revolution on the, on the river and, um, and the countryside around it. That's been really, really influential, that form of criticism has been really influential in the way people think about romanticism. Um, that it's it is it's a kind of an, an artificial veil that that draws um, our attention away from the reality uh, of Britain in that place. Now, I think that's possibly overstating kind of what's going on in this poem and and, and Wordsworth's intentions. As I said before. This is a very well-known landscape for contemporary readers. You know, it's hard to believe that Wordsworth could convince people to forget about their own experiences of this landscape and to ignore the fact that it's a it's a hub of um, the Industrial Revolution, um, just because he doesn't mention it himself. Before I go into too much detail, I want to shift to thinking about the way this poem is structured and I think you can break it down into kind of three parts each of which develops a kind of a train of thought that's been sparked by what's immediately preceded it so each section kind of builds and sort of works through an idea and it concludes with a kind of an affirmation or a statement of belief but then the start of the next section kind of undercuts that and sort of raises a, a doubt or a question and so it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a kind of like we're overhearing words worth thinking through a problem in his own head. It's kind of, it's almost a crisis poem. It's a sort of a, a crisis um, of belief on his part. So working through it section by section, the first section emphasizes that this is a moment of return. Five years have passed, five summers with the length of five long winters. In case we've missed the uh, the message, he is coming back to this um, this landscape that he's visited in the past. And the second se second part of this section begins with a claim that although he hasn't seen the Y Valley for five years, it's it's been a while, it has been present in his memory. In this respect, it's been the source of sensations sweet, as he describes them, tranquil restoration, and the source of his moral sense and he's it's even given him a, a feeling that there's a world beyond his conscious self a kind of what we might think of as a mother nature almost that that exists beyond him and crucially for our understanding of Wordsworth as a whole these memories of the landscape have the power to lull him into something like a kind of a meditative state and during which he can see into the life of things and this often happens in Wordsworth's poetry. You can you can read a lot of poems where he'll go along and, and visit a landscape and kind of it's his view of the landscape which prompts him to kind of see something more, something spiritual or or moral, you know, extract these kind of moral lessons from the landscape as he as he watches them. Now this is a slightly controversial idea for the period, because what he's doing is he's saying, I'm getting my moral guidance or you know I'm, I'm identifying a source of moral authority um, not in the church or the state or my family I'm finding it in myself you know it's I've, I've been prompted I've been catalyzed to do that by the landscape but I'm I'm finding my own morality 
within myself. I'm working it out for myself and not just kind of accepting it from some sort of external source. And that, you know, if you sort of think about the period in which he's writing is a very revolutionary idea. That's a very dangerous idea as far as British conservatives are concerned when they look across the channel to France and, and people sort of arguing similar um, ideas uh, in, in documents like um, The Rights of Man, for example. Okay, so anyway, moving on to the second section, Wordsworth has come to the sense that he is identifying his own moral um, identity um, based on his memories of landscape and, and, and the natural world. But then he immediately casts doubt on this conclusion by saying, if this be but a vain belief, that's a slightly ambiguous phrase, and it sort of its meaning alters depending on, on how you interpret the word vain. You know, is it self-delusional or wrong? Or um, is his uh, belief in nature being, you know, the source of his moral authority kind of self-centered or arrogant? Um, the basic question, though, is why is he suddenly doubting himself? You know, what has prompted him to kind of question the resolution that we think he's found at the end of the first section? Now, we might think that some of the doubt creeps in because he's seen how much this landscape has changed since he was last there. Remember, he's revisiting the Y after five years, and maybe what's happened is he's, he's noticed things have changed in the landscape, and he's kind of thinking, oh, well, what does that mean for my own sense of self? In fact, we find out the landscape hasn't actually changed much since 1793. What's changed is Wordsworth himself. He's gone through an awful lot of growth and development as a person in the preceding five years. And he no longer feels he's the same person who visited the landscape in 1793, or at least his impressions and his, and his, his opinions and his ideas have changed in that period. In effect, a split has opened up between what he was then as a young as a younger man and what he is now as a more mature poet in 1798 and so his return to the landscape revives memories but he starts recognizing that they're not quite what they were or they're not as stable as he thought they were you know he talks about um, gleams of half extinguished thought with many recognitions dim and faint and somewhat of a sad perplexity. So there's this ambiguity or this uncertainty, which kind of makes him start doubting himself all over again. So what does Wordsworth do? How does he kind of reconcile this ambiguity about who he, he now is? Is it possible, he's asking himself, to kind of reconcile these two selves? You know, one, a youthful Wordsworth, one, an adult Wordsworth, into a single unified individual and his answer to that is yes it is possible and the way you do it is thinking about memory as kind of a a, a golden chain connecting these these different kind of experiences together and not only is memory the the kind of the unifying link between them but self-narration is a really important way of making sense of these memories of kind of linking them together into some kind of coherent story and in this respect Tintin Abbey is, is a really important poem partly for our sense of modern autobiography 
you know, the sense that we it is actually possible to tell a reasonably coherent, unified life story, even though I'm a deeply different person now than I, I was when I was a child or, or as a young man. So he's sort of, it's, it's almost a form of therapy, this poem, you know, the sense of disconnection being kind of reconciled through the, through the fact of telling, of writing the poem itself. But having said that, it does suggest the self is not a fixed or a stable object. It's always under construction. It's always something that is um, being revised or being re-narrated. New experiences are being kind of slotted into, um, into the overall picture. It's always possible to sort of re-narrate yourself, you know, to, to retell and reframe your life story over and over again. But then we get to the third section, you know, again, we get a sort of a, we feel like we've come to some sort of resolution with that, with that argument, you know, this belief in, in the power of memory to link us with our past. We, we still have a final hesitation. And he's saying, even if he hadn't learned from nature about, you know, this sort of the ability to, to narrate yourself, he might still be okay. And what he does here is, is what's been known as the turn to Dorothy. So Dorothy Wordsworth was Wordsworth's youngest sister. They were very close as children, spent a little bit of time um, away from each other, living in, in different parts of the country through their late teenage years. And then they came together again and, and spent basically the rest of their lives living together, even after Wordsworth um, was married. And so she's a, she's a kind of a, a fantastic writer in her own right. But here, She's kind of there, sort of almost as a sounding board for Wordsworth. And in fact, until this point in the poem, we haven't even realised there's anybody looking at the landscape with him. She's just there as a silent presence. So he turns from looking out at nature and the natural world to Dorothy. He can still glimpse in, in you know, his younger sister's eyes his earlier energetic self. You know, her presence in a form that reminds him of the language of his former heart and his former pleasures, reassures him that nature's power to educate our youthful selves and, and, and kind of develop our, our mature self is not an illusion, but something that, that he can see happening um, in Dorothy as well. And that's the kind of the final sort of concluding affirmation of the poem. Now, this kind of argument... Um, that Wordsworth sort of making in the poem that that the self is kind of fluid and it's not fixed for all time and it, it can be kind of developed is a pretty radical idea for the period um, and the sense that you can act, actively shape yourself in in the future uh, is even more radical. You're not fixed in place. You're not fixed in your place in society or in in place in family, um, words were suggesting, but you can kind of narrate your own future. It sort of sounds very modern in that sense. And it's it's definitely a radical kind of idea in this period. But again, the most radical aspect of Wordsworth's poem, however, is the implication that kind of moral authority or truth comes from the self. From, from within you. You know, you may be deeply influenced by all sorts of external influences beyond your control, you know, your family, your class, your gender, your, your, your nation. But Wordsworth suggests you're no longer entirely subject to these influences. They no longer kind of have the final say on who you are and, and what you think of yourself and, and who you will, who you can become. The ultimate source of moral authority 
comes from the individual. And that is radical in that it sort of undermines or implicitly kind of puts a bit of a curb on the power of, of institutions such as, you know, the church or, or the state. So I said at the outset that Tintin Abbey has come to be regarded as one of the, the key texts of British romantic poetry. It's kind of what we look for or look to for an example of, of what we think romantic poetry should be about. And in fact, it's actually, it's probably broader than that, I think. It's it's come to often being regarded as, as a sort of a foundational text for what we regard as poetry. Um, as a whole, it's a very sort of subjective, very personal kind of response to the world. The point that I would make is that it's a fairly re recent idea that that's what poetry should be. Uh, and indeed, you know, part of the, the radical nature of Wordsworth's writing in the 1790s is that he, just, he, he actively kind of goes against established forms of poetry like the epic, you know, the, the sort of poetry written by people like Milton and Paradise Lost or the Aeneid or, or the Iliad, uh, which are about great historical figures. Wordsworth is trying to write a very personal poem and it's kind of a mark of the success of what he was doing that he's kind of that these this form of poetry has almost redefined what we understand by uh, what we come to recognize as, as true poetry not only that Tintin Abbey is regarded by a lot of critics as the quintessential form of the greater romantic lyric now that's a phrase that was coined in the 50s um, and used to describe uh, certain forms of poems like Tintin Abbey where you have a kind of a speaker responding to a landscape or viewing a landscape turning inwards and sort of you know for a, a period of meditation and then kind of returning outwards and and reviewing the landscape with a kind of a newfound sense of self or with new insights it's that kind of cyclical kind of process at work and that for a long time has been viewed as as a as a quintessentially romantic kind of um, form of of writing what's happened in more recent years is that our idea of romantic poetry and romantic literature in general has expanded dramatically this is not the time or place to go into a definition of what we mean by romanticism. Um, but typically, or for a long time, when people talked about romantic literature, they would have something like Tintin Abbey in mind, which is this deeply personal kind of response to particularly the natural world. The problem with that definition, though, is that this is also a period of intense kind of engagement in uh, politics, in social movements, in criticism of religion. It's, it's, it's a period, you know, for people like Shelley and Byron and uh, William Blake, for example, who are deeply engaged in, in the world around them. And, and while they certainly write very meditative, kind of personalised, individualised poetry, their sort of form of romanticism is deeply engaged in the world around them. And indeed, their form of romanticism is as much about imagining a new world that they would like to see um, come into, into, into force or, or to overturn the, the current state of affairs as they see it in, in 1790s Britain. So that sense of Wordsworth as the quintessential romantic poet based on his love of nature and his fascination with the development of his own individuality and his mind is one that has kind of not been 
cast out as as not being romantic anymore, but has been complicated by a lot more examples of um, of you know what can be deemed romantic poetry. And in fact, if you're trying to kind of come up with a definition of romantic poetry now, in some ways the best answer you can give is poetry written within a certain period, you know, from kind of about the 1780s through to, say, the 1830s. Even then you get poets now um, who write in a romantic style, so do you consider them romantics or not? And equally, you get a lot of poets like Shakespeare, for example, who are writing in a uh, often write in a style of poetry that sort of seemed very similar to to what would come, you know, several hundred years after them. So that question of what is romantic poetry, what makes it distinctive, is a very very difficult one to answer. But at least in terms of Wordsworth's writing, this sense of of a kind of a personal response to the natural world that you get in Tintin Abbey is uh, it's still regarded as a kind of a, a as a centerpiece of this period's writing. Anyway, I'll leave things there. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of Tintin Abbey. There's a hell of a lot more that can be said about the poem, but hopefully um, you've got a slightly better sense of the context in which the poem was written and the way in which it's been read over the past few hundred years. See you next time on another episode of The Poet Taster.